I'm going to go to the book of Acts, chapter 17, because the church at the city of Thessalonica, that was eventually known as the Church of the Thessalonians, um, we are, we're given the account of it, of its origin, in Acts chapter 17. And so it's a great place to start before we start reading the book. And it says, chapter 17, verse 1, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decree of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So the church at Thessalonica is started in the book of Acts in the span of three weeks. And it's, it's a fascinating idea because this is the, one of the, the fastest church plants that we have history of uh, in Paul's ministry, but really in the history of church planning, that's pretty fast by anybody's standards. But what Paul's going to do is he's going to write a letter to encourage these people and remind them of what took place in that three weeks. Remind them of what the Spirit of God was doing, remind them of what the Word of God was doing, and remind them of the promise that it gives them for the future. So a lot of people say that First uh, Thessalonians could very well be the first epistle that Paul wrote. Some people say it's Galatians, some people say it's First Thessalonians. It kind of depends on how you read Galatians chapter 2, if Paul's talking about what is called the Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts. So some people think it is, some people think it isn't. It's not a big deal either way, but Paul right now is writing one of his earliest letters. And so we get to see some of his emphasis. And there's, a, there's a, just a vitality in what's awesome about watching Paul write is we get to watch the same message carry out. Right? Paul is going to write to these people about be reliant upon the Lord, be thankful for what the Lord has done. When he gets to 2 Timothy, which is his last book, he's going to write basically the same thing. And there will be slightly different emphasis in different books, but Paul's message stays the same. His exhortation to the church stays the same across all Scripture, which is, hey, God has done a work. Here's how we should respond. And so 1 Thessalonians is going to do that. Paul, you know, most of Paul's epistles kind of hinge on the word therefore or the word because of or since or finally, uh, usually when he's about halfway through. He says, okay, the first half of the book is all about here's what God has done. And the second half is here's what we should do as a response to that. Here's how our lives should be changed because of that. He does that in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, really all of Paul's books, Romans. There's an emphasis on here's what God has done and now here's our response. And 1 Thessalonians is going to be very much the same. But what Paul's going to do is he's going to zero in. And instead of, you know, Ephesians is, is all about how, hey, you know, the Trinity is all working together to establish you. To, to bring you to salvation. Uh, you know, Colossians is all about, hey, Jesus Christ is before all things. He's the supreme, you know, he's, he is, he's Christ. 
right? He is the king. He's not a God. He's the God. He's not a Lord. He's the Lord. He's not the great teacher. He is the teacher, right? He's not a good moralist. He's God. And, but what Paul's going to do in 1 Thessalonians is he's going to reflect on what God has done, but on a smaller level. And what he's going to kind of zero in on is what God has done in this church. In a, in a small church, what God has done and how that should drive their response. And so it's, it's, a much, it's a very personal letter that Paul's going to be writing. And so he starts out, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. Sylvanus is the long form of Silas. To the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. At this point, if you come to Wednesday nights regularly, you know what we're going to talk about, and that is that grace and peace are always part of Paul's epistles. Because you always have the grace of God, which then brings the peace of God. And they're always in that order. Because you cannot experience peace from the Lord Jesus Christ until you've experienced grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you find yourself at a point in life when you say, I don't have peace, then go back. So do I understand grace? Do I understand what God has done? Do I understand who God is, the nature that he has declared to be true of himself? Grace and peace. And he also, it's worth emphasizing, because Paul does it throughout the scriptures also, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is emphatic that God is a king, that he's Lord, that he's Savior. He is not my buddy. And Jesus calls us friends, but he is a king who calls us friends. He never loses the title of king. He never loses his majesty in coming down to be a friend to us. And so we should, there should always be an element of respect in how we address the Lord, how we talk about the Lord. We should be careful that we don't get too casual and flippant because he does want us to be close. He wants us to be friendly, but he wants us to also to be in the presence of a friendly king. And never forget that. So he goes on, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So, remember, we open this by reading Acts 17. Paul's in this city for three weeks. Three Sabbaths is actually what it says. So it could be uh, just barely over two weeks, really. Three Sabbaths. Paul's in this city. And he writes to this church, he says, we give thanks to God for you because we remember without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope, and that you know your election. In three weeks, these people had responded to the gospel, and so they had a work of faith. They believed, and that resulted in a work of action in their life. They loved. They loved because they had been loved. And so that brought a labor in their life. I want to work to love more effectively. And they had a patience of hope. We are hoping for the Lord's return. And we are waiting because he is God and he can decide the timing. And he also says that we're knowing your election. They know that God has chosen them. And we've said this before when we were in Ephesians. Election, the idea that God elects you, is given to us in the scripture to be a comforting thought. It's not given to us to be this, well, you know, some people are elected and some people aren't, and so maybe you're not elected. That's not what election is about. Election is about if you have responded to the imitation of Christ. If you're a Christian, you're elected. 
God chose you, and that should bring you immense comfort because if God picked you and said, I want you to be a Christian, then he is capable of finishing the work that he started in your life. And so your election is a wonderful thing to hang on to if you're a Christian. It's not a thing to scare us. It's a thing to comfort us. And he says, for our gospel, so they did all these things. They had this work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. They're confident in their election because, in verse 5, he says, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. The word of God did not come as just words on a page or just words explained by a man with a brilliant intellect, which is what Paul had. The word of God came in power and it came in the Holy Spirit and it came in assurance, an understanding, a divine understanding of this is truth. This is real. This is why, okay, this is why as a church we put so much emphasis on teaching the word of God because we believe that it comes with power and with the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. You can't say that about too much else in life, right? If I try and say that about programs, about personalities, about personal charisma, or anything else, none of that holds out in the grand scheme of things. But the Word of God can come in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. So, there's an emphasis here. These people have responded. Paul is thankful to the Lord because these people have responded to the work that God is doing through his word, through his Holy Spirit. These people are responding to what is happening. And the, what has happened is now the birth of a church. These are faithful people that Paul is writing to encourage who have been discipled for about three weeks. That is not a long time to get discipled, but these people now have a work of faith, a labor of love, and a patience of hope because they're responding to the power of God, right? Human intellect cannot, in three weeks, turn someone into a faithful disciple. Personal brilliance cannot do it. Money cannot do it. But the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Word of God, that can do it. And so he goes on because he's, he's giving thanks for the church. He's reminding them of how much he appreciates them. In verse 6, he says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the Word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God to idols. I'm sorry, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul, again, he's just outlining why he's thankful for this church. He says, you received the word in much affliction with joy. Isn't that interesting? This church received the word of God in pain and in joy simultaneously. Paul's in this church for three weeks, not because he got a better gig somewhere else, because he was driven out to somewhere else. Okay? This, the word, it came in power, it came in the Holy Spirit, and it came in pain. It came in affliction. But with that, he says there's joy. And this is really important because, you know, we all like to feel good in life, okay? Nobody, and most people don't, enjoy being depressed. And even if they want to be depressed, it's because it makes them feel better about how depressed they are and how insensitive the rest of the world is. So it's still kind of backwards getting around to the same idea. But nobody, if, you're, if your goal is to be happy and to have great feelings, then you can't have pain and happiness 
at the same time. But the Holy Spirit brings joy. And that's an entirely different thing. Happiness is based on your circumstances. When something good happens to you and you feel good things about it, that's happiness. But when something bad happens and you have an understanding of, you know what, the Lord is still doing a work and so I find joy in this moment, that's an entirely different thing and that will carry you through things that happiness won't. If you chase after happiness, it will always leave you empty. If you are looking for joy, it's just a matter of being in the presence of the Lord. And it comes. It's a fruit. You don't ever have to manufacture joy. It's a fruit of the Spirit. If, you are, if a tree is in good soil, it bears fruit. It just happens, right? Trees do not force themselves to bear fruit. They bear fruit as a response to the soil that they're in. If you are in the soil of the Word of God and the soil of the Holy Spirit, your life will bear fruit. Joy will come. You never have to make it happen. So they received the Word with joy and in much affliction. Life is hard, but joy still comes through the Holy Spirit. And he says, For from you, verse 8, the Word of the Lord has sounded forth. Not only did they receive it, they are now spreading it. This is a joy that is contagious because it's birthed in the Word, in power, and in the Holy Spirit. And that is something that you cannot stop. And he says, your testimony is going out to the whole region. Everybody's being impacted by what has happened to you. And the story of how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son. You turned from something to someone. You're always serving something or someone. We are, we are worshiping creatures. It's just part of how our bodies are made. We will worship something. And if you turn to God, you are turning away from something. If you turn from God, you are turning to something. So this church had turned to God from idols and they are waiting for his son. There's an expectancy of we believe that what God has said is true and now we are looking forward to getting to watch him fulfill the rest of his promises. Chapter 2, he goes on. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated in Philippi, and you, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. Now, we didn't go back and read it. But if you read Acts 15 and 16 as the lead-up to the church getting planted in Thessalonica, you realize Paul didn't have a bad three weeks. Paul's having just a bad season of life. Okay, Acts 15 ends with Paul separating from his closest friend in ministry. The guy who originally was the only person who believed that he was telling the truth when he became a Christian. Everyone else thought he was lying. They all thought it was a trick, except Barnabas. And at the end of Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas get in a major argument over how they're going to do a missions trip that's so heated that they divide. So Paul loses his best friend. And then he goes to minister. And you watch, you, you can map it out in the book of Acts as he's going around in chapter 16. Tries to go one way, doesn't work. Tries to go another way, doesn't work. Tries to go another way, doesn't work. Finally just comes to, the, to Troas, which is on the ocean. And stops because you can't go no further. Right? He just he runs out of land. And then, having lost his best friend, having to some extent or another failed to fully understand where the Lord is leading him, at a point where he says, I am out of ideas, I'm out of options, he gets a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and teach us. And it says, then we concluded that the Lord was calling us to Macedonia. Like, it's a, it's a pretty good conclusion. You know, there's actually no other option and you got a vision to go with it. Macedonia, here we come. So they go to Macedonia, they go to the city of Philippi. Paul cast a demon out of a girl who's being uh, basically owned as a slave to, and kept under demonic influence to bring her slave owner's money. He cast the demon out of her. Her owners start a riot. 
Paul and Silas, his new travel companion, are beaten up, thrown in prison. And in prison, there's an earthquake in the middle of the night as they're singing to the Lord. And the jailer comes in and he says, what must I do to be saved? And they explain, he becomes the first convert in Macedonia. But then the, the city officials more or less want to kick Paul out of the city. And so Paul basically, and so where does he go after that? Thessalonica. Paul gets to Thessalonica after a pretty rough go of it. And he's there for three weeks. And what happens? There's a riot. A mob gets stirred up and they drive him out of that city. And he goes to Berea. And we'll, if you go back to Acts 17, what happens next? There's another riot. Paul's just in a, you know, a little bit of a rough and tumble season of life. But he says, our coming to you, chapter 2, was not in vain. He says, after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. All that conflict, all that tension, all the frustration, all the heartache, all the pain, it served a very important purpose, and that is that it clarified Paul's message. By the time Paul got to Thessalonica, he was not distracted by anything. Because he had only one thing that he could hang on to, and that was that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. He couldn't hang on to friends. He couldn't hang on to his own intellect to determine where the Lord was leading. Paul had one thing to hang on to, and that was the Lord. And so he shows up at Thessalonica, equipped with the Lord and nothing else. And in three weeks, a church is planted, and there are faithful disciples. Right? So conflict, the Thessalonians received the word of God in much affliction with joy. Because affliction brings clarity. Paul's going to be clear here. When I brought you the word, I had no ulterior motives. I was not out to get money. I was not out to get popularity. I was only delivering the word because it was really the only thing I could do. And sometimes we, we wrestle with, you know, we want life to be easy. We want life to feel fun. We want there to be pleasantness. And we want to ha just have happiness all the time. And it's not bad to desire those things because we are created as being as in the image of God and we live in a cursed world. And so if the world hurts, it's because this is not how it was supposed to be. All right? But if you're in a trial, if you're in a conflict, the Lord is clarifying you. He's purifying you. And there are a lot of things in all of our lives that just really don't matter. They just need to kind of fall away. You need to get left behind. And trials and conflicts do that. They bring us to a point where we can say, our word did not come to you, in, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. And so Paul is going on, he's explaining how the gospel came to this church. And so he says, verse 3, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. Verse 4, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Paul says, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. The idea there is the idea of a steward or a manager. Somebody who's put in a position of overseeing a certain amount of resources on behalf of someone else, right? The manager doesn't own the store. The steward doesn't own the stuff, and they have, but they have a responsibility, and that is to use it wisely. And Paul says, we were approved by God. We were entrusted with the gospel. We were given a stewardship of the gospel. And so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Paul says, okay, if you're a steward 
If God has given you the gospel as a stewardship, then who are you stewarding it for? God. Right? If God is the master, if he's the king, and he says, hey, here is something for you to take, then who are you doing this for? God. Okay? So Paul says, we did not speak to please men. We spoke for the pleasure of God who tests our hearts. It's important to understand this. As a church, any person who wants to, to serve the Lord faithfully, especially if you want to be in a position of leadership, you need to understand this. You are not here primarily to please people. In a, in, a, in a very real sense, you're not even here primarily to serve people. We say, well, wait, serving people is a great thing. It is a great thing, but it's not the main thing. We're here to serve the Lord. And so, again, if we can clarify our vision to say, okay, what am I here for? I am here to please God. Okay, that changes everything about how church service operates, right? Because songs are now no longer about whether or not you like them or not, or whether or not I like them or not. Songs are about, do they please the Lord? Times of, of prayer and fellowship are no longer about, do I get to hang out with the people I like? They're about, am I pleasing God with my conversation? Times of studying the Word are not about, you know, uh, how close are we to being finished? They're about, am I pleasing the Lord with the devotion I'm giving to His Word? And there's a, there's a huge difference that happens. And when that happens, when that becomes focal for us, that becomes the focal point for us, Everything else falls into place. If you are working to please God, then gosh dang it, you are going to love serving people because you will find pleasure in pleasing God. Even people who are a pain to serve. But if you're trying to please people, what are you going to do? Man, some people are just not easy to serve, so I'm going to serve people who I like. Right? That's, I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what real ministry is. It's sorting out who you like and who you don't like and trying to stick with the people you like. No, no. Ministry is I'm going to serve the Lord. And therefore, I want to, if I, am, if I am managing resources for the boss, for the king, then my responsibility is to see those resources as he sees them, right? If the, if the owner of the company comes and says, I want us to do this, and the manager says, I don't think that's a good idea, who gets to make the final call? The owner. It really doesn't matter if the manager thinks it's a good idea or a bad idea. His job is to carry out the wishes of the owner, of the boss. And so when we're, with, when we're serving the Lord, hey, the Lord wants you to talk to that person. I don't want to talk to that person. I don't care. It's not your call anymore. It's about what brings pleasure to the Lord. So we're doing this. Paul's, Paul's giving us a point, emphasis here. When we came to you, we came as stewards. We came to be faithful to the Lord because we were not there to impress you. We weren't there to impress really anybody in the city. We were there to do the will of the Lord. So he's emphasizing that they came as stewards. He's going to go on and make another point of emphasis. He says, Neither any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. He said, We weren't using this for any personal gain. This was all about serving the Lord. Verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. We had some times when we could have kind of, you know, we could have patted our wallets a little bit, but we did not because our goal was to please the Lord. In verse 7, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. 
For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. Paul starts out, he says, we brought the word to you like stewards or like managers. Now he says, we brought the word to you like mothers. Have you ever noticed that moms just have a particular relationship with their kids that's a little bit unique? Like, nobody else likes your kids as much as you do, right? It's just kind of a a fact of life. And we, we recognize that it's cool. It's a whole, there's all kinds of chemicals happening in there in your body that are making this work. It's a wonderful thing, but it's very distinct. And Paul says, we came, we brought the word to you like mothers. So we were affectionately longing for you. We wanted to see you grow because you've become dear to us. He says, verse 9, you remember our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Have you ever noticed that moms, particularly moms of young kids, seem to work day shift and night shift, right? It's not like, okay, I just clocked out, right? It's 8 o'clock p.m. I have been with you since I woke up. I'm checking out. You can take care of yourself for the night. That, I'm not a mother, okay? Probably won't ever be one. But I don't think that's how it works, right? When does a mom stop caring for her kid? She don't, right? It doesn't end. Once you become a mother, there is a burden of love that goes on that I just can't compute with. But it goes on and it doesn't stop. And so Paul says, hey, we were laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Moms don't tell their kids, hey, I need a break. Or at least they probably shouldn't. But don't tell you, let's work with one-year-olds here, okay, for, this, for the sake of mostly staying safe. Why not? One-year-olds. Moms don't tell their one-year-olds, I have changed that diaper four times today. You're on your own, right? It just doesn't happen. You can, you can do this. You're a year old, kid, right? Like, get with the program. Every other human being does this sooner or later. Like, you can do this too. Moms don't really do that. And they don't say, hey, I need you to serve me. A mom's heart is to serve her children. And Paul says, that was our heart towards you. We wanted to make sure that we were never a burden to you, never making demands of you. Hey, the church needs to gratify the minister. The church needs to meet the pastor's needs. The church needs to free the pastor up to do important stuff because he's in full-time ministry and the rest of you losers aren't. Paul says, that's not what we did. We had a vision to serve you as a mom because we cherished you, because you were dear to us. He says, we preach to you the gospel of God. The gospel came with that heart of nurturing and compassion and wanting to see the church grow. So, they came as stewards, right? Managers. We have a, we have a, a very specific call, a very specific master. They came as moms. We have a burden for you and a love for you. We just want to encourage you, to cherish you, to labor night and day for you. And then lastly, he comes as dads. Verse 10, you are witnesses and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted, comforted, and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The words totally change here, right? When Paul's talking about stewards, he says, hey, you know, uh, we weren't using flattering words. We weren't being covetous. He talks about moms. He's talking about we were well-pleased. You know, we were laboring night and day. You'd become dear to us. We cherished you. He talks about loving them like a dad. He says, you know what? We were devout, just, blameless. And when it came to you, we exhorted, comforted, and charged you. 
to walk worthy of the God who called you. Isn't that how parenting should work? There's a balance. God created a mom and a dad to come together and make a baby. Because a baby, a child needs a mom to cherish them, to love them, to make them know that they are special, that their artwork looks amazing. We're going to put it on the fridge. I have no idea what it is, but it's just gorgeous, right? We just love you so much. You want to sit on the couch and read books and snuggle and whatever else. And the dad says, hey, Murphy's don't do that, right? Like, hey, you're becoming a man. I expect a young man to attain to a certain level of behavior in this house. A dad says, hey, I'm going to exhort you. I love you. And therefore, I am not going to let you be a wuss. Therefore, I expect you to grow and to act like a man and to walk worthy of calling. Right? Most of the great sayings in the Murphy household come from our dad. Right? Things like, there are two kinds of people in the world, whiners and overcomers. I've heard that a lot in my life. Not so much from my mom, though. Right? Um... I'm, I'm tempted to just go on like an entire roll, but he might be embarrassed. But there's some wonderful things that my dad has taught me over the years, right? Every job is an interview for the next job. What you do right here tells me about how much I can depend on you for the next job. Or if you felt entitled, you could be reminded that, you know what? You deserve eternity in hell. And anything else is a bonus. And he's absolutely right. And a child needs... Both of those things. A child needs the mom to, to teach them that they are loved, but he needs a father to say, no, no, no. You might be a child now, but you were not created to stay a child. Right? A dad really shouldn't be interested in raising good kids. His job is to be interested in raising adults. Good adults, not good kids. That's the vision. When Paul says, okay, so look, this is how we came to you as, as leaders. This is our heart for you as the church. Man, we were stewards of the gospel of God. We came and we had a vision and that was to please the Lord. Our job was not to make you happy. Our job was to do the work that God has sent us to, to do. We came to you as mothers. You needed to know that you are cherished by God, that he holds you dearly in his heart, right? You need to know that he loves you immensely. And we also came like dads to say, hey, you need to know that because of what God has done, the only appropriate way for you to act, if you believe this to be true, is to change your behavior. Right? And the kids in the kingdom of God do not do it that way. Not because so you get into the kingdom of God, right? It's like when you, when you tell your kids, hey, Murphy's don't do this, or Perry's don't do this, or Turner's don't do this. Right? It's not, hey, don't do that so that you'll be a Turner. It's, hey, don't do that because you are one. Right? There's an expectation of behavior. Because you're already part of this family, we have an expectation. Because, Paul says, as fathers, we wanted to exhort you, to charge you. Hey, you're part of the family of God. Walk worthy of the calling. He goes on. Verse 13, chapter 2. He said, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak 
to the Gentiles that they may be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Paul here is just kind of, in a sense, repeating what he said earlier when he's talking about, hey, they received the word in joy and in affliction. He says, hey, guys, you received it not as words of men, but as the words of God. He said, I am blessed. I am thankful for you as a church because you receive the scripture like it's the word of God. You don't receive it like, let's listen, let's get through this, let's go eat lunch. You receive it like, this is the word of God and this should impact me. This has power behind it. This has the Holy Spirit behind it. And he said, and you received it the same way I did in affliction. You received it with tribulation. It came with hard times and you still received it. So I'm just, I'm thankful for you as a church. He's saying, I'm blessed by your conduct. But we, brethren, verse 17, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. This is a really interesting passage here because it says we wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. And sometimes uh, there are branches of Christianity that say, well, you know, you just bind Satan and you rebuke the devil and, and he has no power over you and you can do whatever you want. And by and large, their arguments are, are, tend to be pretty scriptural, okay? But Paul, who I'm going to venture to guess was more spiritual than any person in this room, says, hey, we wanted to come and Satan hindered us. And he doesn't elaborate what that looks like. He doesn't explain what that was. He doesn't say, hey, we tried to bind him and we couldn't. He doesn't say, hey, it turns out it wasn't the will of God. He doesn't say Satan was more powerful than God. He just makes a statement. And so sometimes it's okay to say, you know what? I'm not really sure how that works because it seems like the Lord says we have victory, which we do. But somehow or other, the enemy still sometimes slows things down in a way that we don't understand. In Daniel, uh, I think on Sunday, maybe two Sundays from now, uh, Daniel's going to be interacting with an angel. And the an angel says, hey, you started praying three weeks ago, and I started coming, and I had to stop and fight with the prince of Persia, a demonic force, and it slowed me down. But I'm here, right? So how does that work? Paul doesn't elaborate. And so you know what the answer is? Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Paul says, I wanted to come in person. I really wanted to come in person. It didn't work out. So, I sent Timothy. And, and that went, and Timothy came, and he was able to encourage you, and he came back and encouraged us by telling us that you're faithful, by encouraging us in the fact that you are continuing to receive the word of God in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, that you are holding fast. And that is such an encouragement, right? Do you know what it's like, like when you get the chance to catch up with somebody who you haven't seen in a long time. And, it's, and, and you kind of, you know, you say hi, but then like you have one of those conversations where you're just able to go deep, really fast. What has the Lord been doing in your life? 
What are you excited about doing? What are the opportunities for you to step out in faith that you're not sure about but you're trusting the Lord for? You meet somebody who's been walking with the Lord for a long time and you get to have one of those conversations, it's about the most encouraging thing you can have in life, right? When I get to connect, this is why, you know, honestly, sometimes a Christian conference is a great thing. If you've been, if you've moved around a little bit and you have a chance to go back and catch up with people you haven't seen in a while, and it's, hey, are you still laboring in the Lord? That's awesome. Hey, I'm still laboring in the Lord too. Let's pray for each other. How can I encourage you? How can you encourage me? You know, keep me updated. And you come back a year later and say, hey, I've been praying for you for a year. How is the Lord working it out? It is an encouragement to hear that someone is being faithful. It's something that we honestly, over time, don't get to hear that often, right? And Paul says, I want you to know as a church that we were encouraged. We were not able to come. There are challenges that have come. I warned you. He said, hey, I told you we would suffer tribulation. I knew this was going to be hard. I knew this was not going to be easy. There's going to be a lot of pain and suffering and heartache along the way. But you guys are holding steady, and I'm blessed, Paul says. Verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. I think it's First John that says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Paul says, there is nothing that brings me greater joy than to know that you guys are holding steady. Okay? And he says, verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Paul says, all right, I just want to pray a blessing over you guys. Because I am blessed and encouraged at all that God has done. And you guys are holding fast and you're encouraged at all that God has done. Next week, chapter 4, Paul's going to say, okay, finally, because, because the word of God came in power and with the Holy Spirit. Because this church was started in much trial. Because God has clarified all of our hearts. Here's how we should be responding. Right, so he's going to get into the response side next week. But for this week, for these three chapters, what do we do? We reflect on what God has done. We rejoice in the people we're put around. We remember that our stewardship is to do the will of God, right? And we give thanks to the Lord for one another and pray a blessing over them. So, there we go. Next week, I would encourage you to read chapters 4 and 5. They're not that long. They're not that long, but they are packed. If you want some practical application for how to walk a Christian life, Paul's been nice and, you know, kind of mom mode, all chapters 1, 2, 3. Dad mode is next week. He's going he's gonna to be very clear. If you're struggling to understand what should I do with my life, Paul will make it exceptionally clear. But there you go. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. God, I thank you for this church. I pray for everyone here that you would make us all increase and abound in our love for one another and for all people. Pray that you would establish our hearts without blame in holiness before you. God, you've done such an amazing work. 
in, in what you did with Paul and the Thessalonian church, but what you've done in this church. God, we, we want to just pause and on, on a small level be thankful, immensely thankful for what you've done, for the ways in which your word has come with power and with the Holy Spirit, and we have gotten to watch lives be changed. We've gotten to watch our own hearts get changed by what you're doing. So Lord, I just pray a blessing over everyone here, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on them. Give them boldness. Let them hear the word and receive it as the words of God. Let it change our lives. Let it drive us to greater things for your kingdom and your glory. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.